Good morning. If you notice in your bulletin, it says something about toddler nursery and children's church. I would recommend that you not go back there with your kids. They will be lonely and it'll be dark and they'll be afraid and you'll come back in here sad and we don't want any of that. So we are not having that today. So I just want to throw that out there. So if you would please turn in your copy of God's word to Psalm 60. Psalm 60. This morning we get to see Jesus as our true victory. Psalm 60 beginning in verse 1 for the choir director according to the Shushan Eduth a mixtum of David to teach when he struggled with Aram Naharim and with Aram Zobah. And Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now, just to pause for a second. Um, We're not going to go there, but in case you want context of the story that that's making reference to, you can check uh, 2 Samuel 8 and 1 Chronicles 18 to see the two versions of that story that we have in the the text of Scripture um, for some greater context about what what was going on at that particular time. O God, you have rejected us. You have broken us. You have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its breaches for it totters. You have made your people experience hardship and you have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. You have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth, Selah. That your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exalt, I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine and Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? O give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your word. Father, thank you that it tackles difficult issues, the difficult emotions that people go through when they're trying to walk with you, when they're trying to walk rightly with you, when they're trying to see your face and feel your presence and be conformed to your image and bear your image properly in this world. Father, thank you that if we truly are your covenant people in Christ Jesus, no matter what our circumstances are and no matter what our feelings tell us about our circumstances, we have full and ultimate and complete victory in the Lord Jesus Christ, even when we feel defeated. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, um, starting the new year off back in the Psalms, there's, um, there's a, a struggle that all true believers have had and that all true believers do have from time to time. And that's the feeling of spiritual defeat. It's the feeling that God is far away, that somehow some, some distance has been created between ourselves 
and between the Lord. Now, before I get into the context uh, and, the, and the flow of the psalm, I, I wanted to go ahead and get this part out of the way. Sometimes you should feel far away from God because you've been in sin. Let, let's just go ahead and get that out of the way. There are times where spiritually you're going to feel defeated because at least in that temporal moment you are. Because you've done that which is contrary to the revealed will of God. And God, though he still loves you and God's grace is still upon you and God's compassion ever abides on you and God will not cast you out and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Relationally, you will feel distant from God if you are actively living in sin. So there always has to be a self-examination that happens first. Where it's like, okay, what is it that I might have done on my end that makes me feel as if God is far away? And if you can very readily point to some active real sin where you're like, oh, probably shouldn't have been doing that, shouldn't have been living that way, shouldn't have been having that attitude, then you repent and the gap gets closed. It, it's great. And if that were what this sermon were about, we could close the Bible and be done and move on. But that's not the context of what's going on here. What's happening here is there's no act of sin on the part of King David at this particular moment. But God is allowing his people to face hardship and defeat at the hands of an enemy. And David is crying out to the Lord, God, you've rejected us. That's essentially in our English text, verbatim, the first part of verse 1. Oh God, you have rejected us. And there's a tone of confusion in this prayer because David's kind of scrambling, going, okay, wait. To my knowledge, we didn't do anything worthy of being rejected. And you made a promise in the covenant, go back and read Deuteronomy, that if we walk in the covenant with you as we should, you would be with us, you'd help us defeat our enemies, we would keep the land. And so we're walking with you, we're worshiping you rightly. To our knowledge, nobody's living in flagrant sin against you. And if they are, they've repented of it. And yet still, we're being defeated by our enemy. You have rejected us. Now, every real believer that really walks through their spiritual life with the Lord is going to experience this at some point. Where you do a genuine, real self-examination. You go to trusted counselors and advisors. You ask them, hey, is there something that you see in me that I'm not seeing? Maybe there's a blind spot. Maybe there's some sin that I'm just not really aware of, that unintentional sinning. And and you check with people who know you well, people who hold you accountable. No, man, it seems like you're just really walking with the Lord, man. You're not hiding any secret sin. And you just feel spiritually defeated. Like you're just getting hammered and, and you're praying about it and you're trying to walk through it and you're trying to seek counsel. And it's just moment after moment, this grand frowning providence of God where your heart cry is, God, you have rejected us. God feels far away. If you've not had that happen to you yet, let me go ahead and give you great word of encouragement this morning. You will. I know. You come, you come to Sylvania and the sermons I preach for the feel-good nature of them, I know. 
You're going to experience this if you haven't. And if you have experienced this, you know that it is an incredibly unpleasant thing to experience. Where you're just feeling spiritually devastated. And you don't really understand why. Uh, expanded version of this is essentially the entire story of Job. Declares in that story that he was a righteous man. Walked rightly with the Lord. And then essentially out of nowhere, his whole life gets crushed. And he cries out to God and at least for a little while, God doesn't answer him. Because we don't know how long of a gap there is from when all that stuff started happening to Job to when God restored him. We don't know how long that was. And, and Job's basically throwing his hands up going, what, what's going on? God, you, where'd you go? You're far away. I... And notice the language that, that David uses to really hone it in to his audience, to really kind of grab their attention. He starts talking about the breaking of the land. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Now the language here is just the earth in general, but but when they make reference to the earth, to the land, and it's in the context of covenant's reality, there was this promise given in the old covenant of a land space. And if people rejected the covenant of God, they would lose their land space. And if people kept the covenant of God, they would maintain their land space. And so any time there is an issue with the land, it's the underlying theme is there's an issue with the covenant. And so God, we, we don't see any open sin on our part. We see that our people have been keeping the covenant, and yet the land that's part of that covenant agreement seems to be getting devastated right now. We're being rejected. We're being beaten by enemies. The land itself is being overrun and crushed. So God, what's going on? And not only is there a breaking of the land, there's also a breaking of the people. You've made your people, verse 3, experience hardship. You've given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. Now, this is not the point of the sermon. I just want to throw this out here as an aside. Whatever your view on drinking wine or not drinking wine, that's your business. I know this is a Baptist church, and I know I'm supposed to say that you're not supposed to drink wine, but I've read the Bible, and so I can't say that you're not supposed to drink wine because there's a whole bunch of places in the Bible where it says it's totally okay to drink wine. And the first miracle Jesus ever did is he turned water into wine. And so I would be ridiculous to stand up here and lie to you like that. But if you choose to not do that for whatever reason, that's your freedom to make that choice. However, if you choose to drink wine, and you're confused by this verse as to why it's a curse that God gave them wine to drink that made them stagger. If your view on wine is, well, yeah, when you drink it, you're supposed to stagger, you have a problem. (laughs) And the first step to healing is identifying that you have a problem. If you don't know why the text... Views that as a curse. Well, I thought that was the point. You, you want to call somebody. When the service is done, come see me. There's some people I can get you in touch with. Okay? So it's a curse on the people that they're all walking around intoxicated all the time. Can you imagine an entire nation of people during the middle of the day 
just drunk all the time. What a horrible society that would be. Like that would be an awful place to live. It'd be like New Orleans. Sorry for those of you from New Orleans, but it's true. You're laughing. It's funny because it's true. So, it, The people are broken. The land is broken. Their emotions are broken. They feel rejected by God. And then David comes to the full realization that the truth can save them. Notice what he says. You've given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be, it's not currently, but that it may be displayed because of your truth. And so what David is basically asking of God here is like, God, per the covenant, we're not living in an open sin. We're not living in rebellion. We're not all the reasons why you would be rejecting us and causing the land to break and causing the people to break. Like none of these things are what's happening. And, And our whole society is twisted and it's confused and it doesn't know what's going on. It doesn't know why these things are happening. That's the disorientation language of the, the wine thing is that people are just disoriented and confused about why God is rejecting him and why the enemy is overrunning them. And he says, I know that for those who fear you, you're supposed to fly a band of truth over them. I know that's how it's supposed to be, but it's not. You say, that's a bold way to pray. And it is. And so what does David cry out to God to have happen? Verse 5. David cries out to God for God to save your beloved. That your beloved may be delivered Save with your right hand and answer us. Now this beloved, it's, it's a noun in our English form. It's more of an adjective, more of a descriptor word. It's not really a noun in the Hebrew text. And really, if you just translated it completely directly, it would be the English word lovely. That thing that is lovely to you. Friend, one of the great problems that most of us have in modern evangelical Christianity is that for some reason we don't believe the remarkable truth that because of the salvation that has been given to us in Jesus Christ, we are lovely to God. And that's usually the response I get when I say crazy things like that from the pulpit. A very hushed trickle of, amen. I don't want anybody to know I said it. Because most people don't believe that it's true. Friend, if you're in Christ, you're one with him. Christ is in you and you are in Christ. And he is praying for you as a high priest, making intercession for you at the right hand of the Father, seated on his throne of glory. And according to John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer that he's praying for you right now is, Father, love them with the same love that you love me. You are lovely to God if you are in Christ. And so David gets this. He gets this. And he says, 
that your beloved, that your lovely may be delivered. What does he want God to do? Save with your right hand. Now, all through the Old Testament, the right hand of God demonstrates the sovereign, unbreakable power of God. That's what the right hand stands for. Often it's not designated which hand it is, but it includes the language of my mighty hand and my outstretched arm. A lot of times it'll talk about God's right hand. All of it's the same metaphor in the Old Testament of God's sovereign, unbreakable power to act. So David is crying out to God saying, God, I want you to save your people in a way that cannot be stopped. And friends, that's why most New Covenant scholars, when they look back on the Old Covenant and they contemplate the the Christological meaning of metaphors, have come to realize, and I had a friend of mine write an entire dissertation on this, they've come to realize that the mighty hand, the outstretched arm, the right hand of God is a metaphor, a type and shadow of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Let's translate it that way. That your lovely or your beloved, or you could even sub in the notion of that who you have a covenant love with, your wife, that your wife, your betrothed, the one that you have a covenant love for that you don't have for anyone else, might be delivered, save us, Through Jesus Christ. Say, Philip, you're stretching it. Just connecting the covenants together. And answer us. Respond to us. Give voice from your glory to our current situation. And then notice what David does. After he calls out for God to save, he moves to God's sovereign reign over all, beginning in verse 6. God has spoken in his holiness. Could also be translated his sanctuary. And then I want you to notice, I'm going to run back through it, but I want you to notice what God says. I will exalt, I will portion out Shechem, I will measure out the valley of Succoth, Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine, and Ephraim is also the helmet of my head, Judah is my scepter. And then notice the shift, those are all covenant places. Then notice the shift, Moab, not normally thought of as covenantal, is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Crazy, weird Old Testament metaphor. We'll explain it in a second. Please don't start throwing your shoes. Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. Now, I want you to notice there were two different groups here. God speaks in His holiness. God speaks in His sanctuary. Those in the covenant are His. So He's talking about covenantal places and covenantal people. Shechem and Succoth and Gilead and Manasseh and Ephraim and Judah. They're in. Great good metaphors for them. Helmet of my head, uh, scepter, all these kinds of things. But what I want you to note, and when people ask me how sovereign is God, absolutely sovereign. 
Not sort of sovereign. He's not kind of sovereign. He's not sovereign in name only. He doesn't have figurehead sovereignty. He is absolutely sovereign. So much so that notice those in the covenant are his. Those outside of the covenant are his. Moab, you are my washbowl. This is slave language, by the way. This throwing of the shoe that he's about to express over Edom. That was the sort of thing that they would do with those who were slaves. They would take their shoe off. They would throw the shoe at the slave or over the slave as an indicator. It's time for you to come and wash my feet. And they would wash their feet in a washbowl. Moab, you're my washbowl. Edom, I throw my shoe over you. Even though you stand against me from my eternal sovereign perspective, you are nothing but subservient to me. And I will have you do whatever my will pleases for you to do. God is sovereign over those in his covenant. God is sovereign over those outside of his covenant. And David came to understand this. And so while he's currently feeling rejected, he's currently understanding that the enemy is victorious. He's currently understanding that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. He's praying for God to save. He's praying for God to sovereignly deliver. He then acknowledges that God in his holiness is sovereign over all things that exist everywhere. Friends, even God's enemies Serve him in his glory. Notice what it says at the end of verse 8. I want you to hear this. Listen very carefully. Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. Typically, not all the time, but most of the time, typically in the Old Testament, when the language of shouting loud or shouting out loud or shouting aloud or making an exalted noise is used in the Old Testament, not in the context of war. Okay? So not, you know, shout out to your enemies or shout out to whoever, make a loud sound on the trumpet or whatever. When it's not in the context of war, when it's in the context, and we have this context just a couple of verses before this, of the sanctuary. Because that word holiness is also the same word for sanctuary. So it's the environment of God's worship. That's what we're talking about here. God is speaking from his sanctuary. This is his exalted place. This is the arena of human worship because humans were made to worship God and bear his image. And from that holy place, God gives his instruction to the world and receives worship from the people that he's made. And so David has created a context of we're talking about sanctuary life. And when you're talking about sanctuary life in the Old Testament and you call out for someone to shout loud, you're telling them to worship you. That's what God's doing. And so even Philistia, the Philistines. Now listen, this is coming from the pen of David. I don't have the time or the space right now in this moment to finish the sermon on time to talk to you about the working relationship between David and the nation of Israel and the Philistines at the time. To sum it up, it was bad. And they hated David, they hated Israel, and they hated his God. He could not have picked a better group of people outside of the covenant to embody hatred of all things Jehovah. The Philistines. 
And in this psalm, from the voice of God, from his sanctuary, he's looking at the Philistines saying, worship me. And there's nothing in this psalm that indicates that they won't do it when he commands it. Even God's enemies will glorify him one way or the other. In salvation or in judgment. But there will not be, and the scripture makes this very clear in the new covenant, that one day when the final thing is all wrapped up and done, there will not be anyone exempt from every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And friends, in a type and a shadow, David sees it. And he says, you know what? Even Philistia is going to have to shout glory to God. One way or the other. So even God's enemies serve him in his glory. So what then does that mean? Only God can supply the victory. Notice the shift. The shift goes back to first person from David's perspective, not from God's perspective anymore. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? And then he calls out. Basically, he's the king. He's supposed to lead people to war. And he's asking, who's going to lead me to war? God, are you going to go with us? And then he makes this declaration. He says, give us help against the adversary. Why? For deliverance by man is in vain. Friends, the scripture makes it very clear that if you are in Christ, you are supposed to be a part of a community of faith that holds you accountable and helps you walk with the Lord. But some, and this is a great problem of modern evangelical Christianity, there's two great mistakes that have been made in modern evangelical Christianity when it comes to the community of faith. Mistake number one, I don't need anybody else, I just need Jesus. Sounds super spiritual, it's also wrong. Because Jesus says, you need other people if you want to walk right with Jesus. Because here's the deal. I hate to break this to you, a lot gets lost in our English translation. But in the New Testament, all of the verses about salvation except for one, one verse... If you look at it in the original Greek in the New Testament, those verses on salvation are plural verses of salvation. God, let me get deep south on you. God saving y'all. For my friends a little further up north, I know some of you have come from California and from the north. Use guys. There you go. You're welcome. I just want to speak the language of all the people. It's plural. God's not saving you individually. God's saving His people collectively through Christ. You are not God's gift. We are God's gift, Christ's gift back from the fore through the Father. That, that's, there's a love gift and it's us, plural. And so He's saving us. So if you stand up and say, I don't need anything but Jesus, I don't need anybody else, you are clearly standing against the reality of what the New Testament says about how this works. Now, the other mistake, though, that people make, and this is the big one, I think this actually happens more. Man, if I could just get around a whole bunch of really good godly people all the time, that would just help me so much just be like Jesus. 
forgetting the fact that it's actually Jesus that you need to be engaging with to walk rightly with God. It's like you're going to get some Jesus by osmosis. Like if I can just kind of get close enough, some Jesus will rub off on me from these other people. I don't necessarily have to read the Bible myself. I don't necessarily have to pray myself. I don't necessarily have to like commit myself to worship and, and all the other kinds of things that Scripture says are means of grace. I just kind of have to show up and just kind of sit around and just hope it sort of like bleeds over into my life. I don't really need to engage Jesus all that much by myself. I just need to be around Jesus-type people. Wrong! You still have to engage Jesus. Man is not going to save you. Jesus is the one who's going to save you. So here's the deal. Coming to church is not going to save you. But if you don't come and participate in the life of the church, you might not be saved. Say, Philip, ouch. Yeah, ouch. It's not either or. It's both and. You need the community and you need Jesus. And you can't pick one over the other. You have to have them both. That's how this works. And so here David's making this declaration. He says, deliverance by man is in vain. But, notice what he says, through God, I shall do valiantly. Is that what it says? It doesn't even say that in the message. (laughs) Through God, we shall do valiantly. David knew he wasn't going to overrun the enemy by himself. David knew that men couldn't save him, but he knew that if they were going to go to war, some men better go with him. Friend, you need Christ and his community. You need the head and you need the body. You need the husband and you need his bride. You need the shepherd and you need the rest of the sheep. And David got this. (coughs) Through God, we shall do valiantly. And it is he who will tread down our adversaries. Through the Lord, we have strength. Jesus Christ is our true victory. But it is not a victory that I'm striving for alone. It is a victory that I'm striving for with all of the people of God. And so, friend, here's the thing. If you, as an individual, let's go back to the very first verse as we close. If you, as an individual, are feeling distant from God, but you don't know of any obvious flagrant sin in your life that should be causing that to happen, Look around and ask yourself the question from the end of this psalm. Am I one seeking for God to deliver me in Christ? And two, am I doing that with all the other people who are also trying to do that? Sometimes, friends... Sometimes, friends, we feel distant from God because we have made ourselves distant from God's people. And I know God is everywhere. I get that. But when it comes to transformation, when it comes to victory over sin, when it comes to being made into the image of Christ, God has a unique and special presence among his covenant people. And you may be feeling distant from God because you've made yourself distant from the place where God uniquely shows his presence, which is his people. David understood that here. 
say, God, we need a victory. We need you to overcome the enemy. We need you to, to not reject us. And notice the language, us, us, us. David was the king. A king can't win a war by himself. He needed an entire nation of people to follow after God together. And then God to valiantly overthrow the enemy on their behalf. And I think if some of you are honest this morning, when you evaluate your past year and you look to what you want this next year to look like, you want there to be a feeling of spiritual victory in your life. My one sole piece of advice this morning, don't attempt to do it by yourself. We have a ridiculously awful habit of goal setting and isolation. I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to pray more. Am I going to fellowship in covenant with God's covenantal people more? Am I going to hold myself open and accountable to God's covenant people to help me see my blind spots more? Am I going to be willing to be vulnerable with the people that God is conforming to his image who have my best interest at heart more? That's not usually how we think about spiritual development, spiritual cultivation. It's usually this isolation. It's usually this solo warrior. It's just pulling myself up by my bootstraps mentality. I'm going to tackle this. I'm going to do this. No, friends, we are going to tackle this. We are going to do this. Because the strength of the Lord is for His people, not your person. And the more you isolate, the more you put yourself in danger of feeling rejected and genuinely being separated from the greatest place of safety you can have, which is in the presence of the Lord among his people. That's where the true victory in Jesus lies. His power of the cross to make a body of people who come together. We are the sheep of his pasture. And he is our shepherd leading us to quiet and still waters. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the blessing of community. Thank you for the safety that community brings. Thank you for the victory that is to be found in community. Father, as we strive to be like Christ, Father, may community be the thing that we also look toward a faithfulness to a faithful community, a group of people who are longing to be transformed into the image of Christ, where as we pursue Jesus, we can also love one another and display that we actually do belong to Christ. Father, this is where the victory is found. Christ's ultimate victory on the cross that has now been given as a love gift to his community of people, not to just us as individuals. Father, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are going to celebrate the Lord's table together. I invite those who are going to be helping.